Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host. Today, we'll be talking with Drew A. Swanson, author of the book, A Man of Bad Reputation, The Murder of John Steffens, and The Contested Landscape of North Carolina's Reconstruction. How are you doing today? Oh, pretty good, Deidre. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. I wonder if you could start the interview by telling us a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project. Sure thing. Well, I'm a history professor at Georgia Southern University in Statesboro, Georgia, and uh, my work focuses on the, the rural South in general, but particularly on its environment and agriculture. So maybe to put it another way, I'm really interested in how people used the Southern landscape in the past. Uh, maybe because I came from that sort of background. I grew up uh, on a small farm in Virginia. I was kind of always curious about where the world I was raised in came from. But I came to this particular story, which is uh, a tale of a murder during Reconstruction and uh, what happened afterward, because it was, uh, was a story from near the area where I grew up. Uh, it came from an adjacent county just across the North Carolina line. And so it was a story that I'd heard in my childhood, I'd seen the historical roadside marker, so it was kind of in my consciousness. And then I came across it again um, as a professional when I was working on a book about Southern tobacco. And I kind of realized it was you know, richer and maybe a little more complicated than I had ever uh, imagined. And I kind of determined to come back to it and tell that story more fully. And so this book was a, a chance to do that. Who was Senator John Stevens? And what was his role in North Carolina's history? Uh, well, he was a white man of modest background. Um, and then he rose from kind of an obscure place to political power in the years immediately after the Civil War. Uh, so that eventually by 1868, he becomes a state senator representing Caswell County. And then he's assassinated in 1870, so a couple of years into his term. And it's really a shocking killing, kind of tied to the Ku Klux Klan, and it launches a period of, uh, of martial law in the state that comes to be called the Kirk Holden War. And eventually it leads to the impeachment of North Carolina's governor. So Stevens's murder isn't like the sole cause of the failure of Reconstruction in North Carolina, don't read me wrong, but it's really a kind of crucial turning point in how the, the federal and Republican effort to remake the state uh, began to fall apart. Now, tell the audience how you use life, death, and memory of John Stevens to, you know, unlock some of the major themes of Reconstruction. Well, I wanted this to be a story that kind of tackled a couple of uh, really big issues. First was the issue of how Reconstruction you know, played out and then, as I said, eventually uh, crumbled in North Carolina. And then second, I wanted to, to trace the kind of long battle in the decades that followed over what all of that had meant, that sort of historical memory. But I wanted to do this in a narrative fashion. Right? I'm drawn to stories. I imagine a lot of us are. And Stevens's death uh, was kind of a dramatic tale in its own right. So this whole thing was like kind of a murder mystery where the question of, of who did it was long hidden. Uh, and then created an enormous amount of debate in the state. So for me, this was a chance to kind of personalize the past uh, while using this narrative form to try to tell some, some big, important stories, at least as I saw them. 
Now, you argue in your book that Senator John Stevens' story is one of two lives. What do you mean by that? Well, the first life would be his, his actual life, the things that he said and did, uh, and then ultimately how he died. Because uh, I do think those actions and those outcomes are really important for us to understand the era and the state. Uh, but I also point out that the, the memory of these things, right, John Stevens's afterlife, if you will, was, uh, was equally contested. So various parties kind of took Stevens's story, uh, his real actions, uh, and then in the years afterward, you know, shaped them, retold them to meet their own means. So uh, as I see it, this is a story about historical action, but also a story about the, the process of history making. So as scholars, right, we often separate these two into history and historiography, uh, but I'm not so sure we should. I think they're, they're always linked in ways worth exploring. Now, what sort of place was Caswell County before the Civil War? I, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but kind of a backward place, uh, a quiet, sleepy place for a lot of its history. In fact, that part of North Carolina kind of came to be called the back country representing that notion that it was kind of a secondary landscape. Uh, it had had a long history of Native American use, uh, then it settled by, by colonists starting in uh, about the, the 1750s and becomes a place of small tobacco farms, local agricultural production. And then by the time you get to the 1820s, the 1830s, Caswell's residents are already starting to, to leave, to look for that next better place. So they're beginning to head off to what they see as more promising territory in the West, Alabama, Mississippi, later Texas. Now, in your book, you talk about the Bright Leaf, 1850, Caswell landowners and the tobacco fever. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this uh, this kind of sleepy nature of Caswell really begins to change around 1850. Um, and it's a particular crop uh, that does it, Bright Leaf tobacco. Uh, so tobacco had been the traditional crop in the county, but then they began to develop a sort of new form of tobacco, a variety that they call bright leaf. Um, and they perfect that process in the 1850s. Uh, so this crop, which is uh, kind of yellow in color, mild in taste, becomes all the rage. And it really seemed to reverse the county's fortunes. So land values shoot up. Certain farmers become rich who master this process. And you end up with some people actually moving to the county rather than away from it. But it also led to uh, a very particular sort of development, one where certain planters grew richer and more powerful uh, and where the reliance on enslavement increases. So Caswell comes pretty quickly in the 1850s to look like a, like a deep south place, more like the Mississippi Delta or the, uh, the Cotton Black Belt than the rest of the North Carolina Piedmont. So it's a pretty radical reversal of fortune. Now, there were many stories in the book, and one was the story of Thomas Day. Tell us about Thomas Day. Uh, so Day is kind of a reminder um, that the situation I just sketched was really complicated on the ground. Uh, so, so Thomas Day was a free black man in um, a little town called Milton in Caswell, and he was an artisan. He was a cabinet maker by trade. Uh, he's well-respected um, in both the black and the white community in Caswell by all accounts. In fact, he becomes uh, the only black member of a white church in the county. He made furnishings and um, architectural trim for regional planners for their big houses uh, and eventually becomes a slaveholder himself um, in the years before the Civil War. 
So Day's uh, case is like really interesting in its own right. Uh, it kind of highlights that the, the racial limits of county society weren't as ironclad as we're tempted to imagine them. But it's also crucial to say, I think, that Day's story was exceptional, right? Uh, free blacks in the county were relatively few. And that population was was shrinking as the war approached. So it is a place where slavery is getting more and and more uh, important, and its strictures tighter. But you could still find exceptions like like Day. One primary person in the book is Governor William Wood Holden. Who was he, and how did he factor into this story? So Holden, uh, before the war, is a newspaper editor. Uh, and eventually, after the war, he'll become governor of North Carolina. Uh, in fact, he'd actually started his editorial career in Caswell County, kind of one of the ironic connections in the book. Um, but as the war approaches, he's he's moved to Raleigh, the state capital. Uh, and by the start of the Civil War, he's one of the most prominent opinion makers in the state. Uh, during the war, uh, he comes around to support the, the peace movement. So he's he's anti-war. He runs a failed campaign for governor during the war. He makes a lot of enemies along the way. And when the war ends, he becomes a Republican. President Johnson actually appoints him the interim governor of North Carolina right at the end of the conflict. Uh, And then in the 1868 election, he'll win the office uh, in his own right. But personally, um, by all accounts, he's, he's ambitious. He's somewhat abrasive as an individual. He is firmly devoted to the Republican cause but he's also kind of prone to, to harsh reactions in the face of opposition. And so that, I think that personality mix will kind of come back to haunt his administration in the aftermath of Stevens's death. What did Reconstruction seem to promise free people in North Carolina? Well, at first, it, uh, it held out the promise of a lot. Um, first and foremost, freedom. Uh, perhaps equal rights that seem to be on the table uh, right after the Civil War. Uh, maybe some division of land, right? Land ownership, would be, which would be crucial to, to economic success and ultimately to political power. So all this seemed to be on the, the table at the end of the war. Uh, what was unclear was, was how it would play out. Uh, so the stakes were really big, but, uh, but how they'd be followed through on, um, that's much, much more uncertain. Some Blacks prospered after the war, but there were also lots of violence. Tell us about the threat of violence and the open assaults against Blacks, even in the presence of sheriffs. Yeah, violence really flows out of the war, which is sometimes easy for us to forget because the, the shadow right, of that four-year conflict that um, uh, you know, took more lives of Americans than any other war we've ever been involved in. Um, so in some respects, for bloodshed to continue after the war, I think, um, shouldn't be unexpected. But the, the quick and dramatic shifts that were taking place in places like Caswell, you know, from slavery to emancipation, from democratic to Republican control, um, I think the speed of that probably made violence even more likely. So for many Caswell whites, their take was that, that violence was kind of one way to restore what they felt was the natural order of their world. And those actions were often backed, uh, at first at least, by local officials. So the Caswell sheriff, you mentioned the sheriff, uh, for the first couple of years after the war, it's a guy named Jesse Griffith. He had been a sheriff before the war. He had been uh, an office holder during the war. And he almost always backs 
white landowners, Democrats in particular, in like contract disputes. Uh, and he's recorded multiple times kind of looking the other way when, when violence takes place against African-Americans. Uh, so landowners, uh, in many cases, did turn to violence, even murder, in efforts to, uh, to control uh, black labor. Uh, in fact, contracts over agricultural work really became the big flashpoint because making money uh, from the land in Caswell meant growing tobacco in most cases. And growing tobacco entailed a lot of labor. And so landowners sought to secure, control, and profit from farm workers. And then at the same time, free people were trying to establish control over their own lives, right? rightly and understandably so, their own best economic paths. So it's this tension between trying to control uh, someone else's labor and trying to control your own labor uh, that becomes the big friction point uh, in Caswell County and in a lot of other rural southern places. Now, free Three people responded to the violence. How did that play out? Yeah, they fought back, right, in all sorts of ways. Uh, they fought back using legal channels in a lot of cases. So if you look at the, the records of the Freedmen's Bureau, right, that agency that is, uh, is tasked with sort of negotiating these issues across the South in the years right after the war, those Freedmen's Bureau records are full of cases of people taking landowners, right, uh, county whites, uh, to court over issues like broken labor contracts and um, all sorts of other grievances. And this was uh, this was a bold thing to do, right? It was potentially risky. You faced the threat of reprisal. These were complicated systems that that were probably alien to your experience. Um, but nonetheless, free people pursued these legal channels, uh, these means, um, at a really high rate, but they also fought back physically, right? When fed up or put into kind of an impossible situation. So when struck, sometimes they hit back, uh, when they were visited by night riders who were threatening them, they could respond to violence. So there are a number of kind of individual episodes of this, and I try to relate some of them uh, in the book, right, to give kind of names uh, to people placed in these situations. Um, one of the more dramatic cases is, uh, is that of a guy named Samuel Allen uh, in a neighboring county who, according to, to oral history that's recorded much later, um, is visited by night riders, probably Klansmen, uh, who threatened to kill him. Uh, he pulls a hidden knife. Uh, he kills a couple of those night riders and then slips away, escapes into the woods. Right, so meeting violence with violence. And, and ultimately, we don't know how um, his particular case plays out. We don't know what the ultimate end result was. Uh, but it is important to state that the violence disproportionately flowed in the other direction. Right, As you get into these records of outrages, as they're often called in the Freedmen's Bureau files, uh, you know, it's eight, nine nine to one in many cases, uh, landowners, county whites, um, right, pushing violence on free people. Now, how did John Stevens rise to political power? And what was his relationship with Abilene Turgery? Uh, it was an unlikely rise. Uh, in fact, Stevens uh, wasn't born in Caswell. He'd grown up uh, in a county to the west, not, not too far removed, and he probably had relations in Caswell. But um, he moves to Caswell from this neighboring county um, right after the war and goes from being you know, kind of an unknown newcomer to a powerful politician all in the span of, of basically a year. Uh, and he did so in a, kind of a number of fashions. First, by adopting the P Republican Party. 
he'd been a Democrat earlier, he switches parties. Uh, and that helps him secure a set of, of influential posts then. So he becomes a justice of the peace uh, in the county. Uh, he becomes a militia officer. Uh, he may be an agent of the, the Freedmen's Bureau, and maybe we'll get into that in a few minutes. Uh, and then through those positions, he secures, it seems, the confidence of black voters in Caswell at a moment when they were gaining access to the ballot box in large numbers for the first time. Uh, so to put it another way, what's kind of at work here is that Stevens was one of a relatively few white, open Republicans in Caswell at a moment when the state leadership of the Republican Party is looking for white Republicans. Uh, so he's in the right place at the right time. But um, but this guy, Albion Torje, is uh, an important figure in the story, too. Uh, Torje is a, a northern-born uh, lawyer. He was a, a union serviceman, a veteran uh, who moves to North Carolina at the end of the war. And in North Carolina, in Greensboro, he becomes a, a judge um, and then a newspaper editor as well, and then a really active voice in shaping the, the state's reconstruction. And uh, he's kind of got an odd name. If it, if it tickles anyone's memory, Torje then goes on later to, to write the best-known novel about Reconstruction in the United States called A Fool's Errand and a number of other uh, sort of popular works of fiction and nonfiction. So Torje kind of latches on to Stevens or vice versa. It's a little unclear. He tutors Stevens in the law, uh, probably aids him in Stevens in getting that, that appointment as Justice of the Peace in Caswell, and then kind of becomes a mentor for Stevens. So they correspond regularly on legal issues, financial issues, political topics, and that sort of thing. So Stevens and, and Torje are in some ways similar figures. Was Senator John Stevens an ally for blacks during that time period? As a white Republican, what was his relationship with free people? You know, this is, um, this is something I don't have a perfect read on to be honest. Uh, and I try to convey a little bit of that uncertainty in the book. Uh, it was frustrating. Uh, on the one hand, a lot of Stevens's actions when he is in office in his various positions, they do benefit the county's black residents. Right? So he, he does rule um, in their favor, or at least without favoritism, it seems, in, in a lot of the cases that uh, he's tasked with overseeing as justice of the peace. Uh, he supports the the new state constitution in 1868, which uh, put in place a range of reforms that benefit the state's poor, regardless of color. Uh, and then when he's senator, um, you know, some of some of what he votes for in Raleigh uh, probably was popular with black voters back home. Although, again, he doesn't seem to have a particular firm political agenda in those votes um, other than kind of the Republican line. But his personal thoughts on, on race are largely lost to time. Uh, and so that's the kind of frustrating part. They're fragments of things that he's written uh, that I've found. They tend to focus on you know, financial issues, discussions of the political opposition, like day-to-day -day concerns about what Democrats are up to, uh, but not a lot of sort of personal stance or feeling. So maybe the, the neatest way to frame it or the way to, best way to understand it is that, that Stevens was a backbone of the county's Republican Party. And that party was the party that by, uh, by far cared the most about issues central to black life in Caswell. So in that way, he's certainly an ally, although um, what he thinks as a person is um, you know, just kind of obscured by time. Did Stevens work for the Freedmen's Bureau? Yeah, as I kind of hinted at earlier, that's a little uncertain. <laughs> 
Uh, you wouldn't think that it would be. You'd think you'd be able to, to pin this down. Um, Stevens claimed that he worked for the Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, so he represents himself as an agent of the organization. Um, he rules on contract disputes and similar matters as a bureau agent in Caswell uh, for a period of at least a few months. But the bureau official who is uh, placed in charge of Caswell at one point, by the time 1868, 1869, he doesn't believe that, uh, that Stevens actually is a bureau employee. Uh, in fact, he orders Stevens to stop representing himself as a bureau agent or threatens to, to arrest him. Uh, now, there was a lot of turnover in the Freedmen's Bureau in the state, uh, especially at the uh, like sub-assistant level, down the county level. Uh, so it's possible that at some point along the way, Stevens had um, been given a commission or an appointment to serve in Caswell as a bureau agent and that those files had been lost or they had um, just been oral. Uh, so the Freedmen's Bureau itself was uncertain if, uh, if Stevens worked for them or not. Um, and I haven't been able to pin it down you know, one way or another. I've never found that uh, initial contract or authorization. So the, the ultimate answer has to be maybe, but uh, at the very least, he was acting as if he did. Southern Union League and John Stevens' involvement. Tell us about that. So if the Freedmen's Bureau was an important organization on the ground in a place like Caswell, so was the Union League. And if listeners aren't familiar with the Union League, um, it was was an important political and social force in the country in the late 1860s. It had started out as a northern organization, uh, first organized, I believe, in Philadelphia, um, and aimed at supporting the war effort. So you can think of it as kind of a political booster club. But then pretty quickly during Reconstruction, the Union League spreads into the South, And as it does, it shifts in the South, at least, from being uh, a white organization to enrolling large numbers of freed people. So the Union League across the South uh, serves a range of social functions, but primarily um, is there to support the Republican Party, its organization to inform voters of the the issues and the candidates uh, and to try to secure access to the polls. So Stevens uh, becomes an active Union League member in North Carolina. Uh, it seems holds a, a leadership role in Caswell by most accounts within the league. Um, and it is actually uh, through the Union League work that Stevens first met Torjai, who was also uh, active in the league. And in fact, uh, the league binds a lot of these figures together because uh, William Woods Holden, uh, who we were talking about a little bit ago, the, the governor ultimately, uh, Holden uh, was the first director of the Union League in North Carolina by most accounts as well. So it's a kind of a binding force between all three of those figures. Chicken shooting and John Steffen's reputation. Tell us about this. Yeah, so this kind of strikes at the title of the book. Um, This was an era, right, immediately after the Civil War, of really abrasive political attacks, right? Efforts to paint opponents as unscrupulous, corrupt, even criminal. Uh, So if this sounds familiar to our sort of current moment, right, it's a good reminder that there really is nothing new in politics. Uh, So the title of the book, as I just mentioned, kind of alludes to this. There's a battle on the ground over reputation. Reputation really matters uh, to the voters. And so a core bit of gossip emerges surrounding Stevens as an office holder. Uh, And it was focused on a wartime episode. 
So during the Civil War, fairly late in the conflict, Stevens had become involved in um, kind of this messy dispute with a neighbor. Um, Stevens had killed one or more of his neighbor's chickens. Uh, Why is kind of uh, up for debate. Uh, By his account, at least, they kept uh, getting in his garden and messing up his yard and they wouldn't do anything about it. So Stevens was charged for uh, this property destruction. Um, And then in the bad blood that follows, at some point, Stevens pulls a gun uh, in a fight with the neighbor, fires it, and wounds two bystanders, uh, including a law officer. Uh, Kind of astonishingly, it results really only in a slap on the wrist at the time. Uh, Stevens pays a fine and essentially admits that he's wrong. Uh, In fact, I think ultimately he's null processed, it seems. Uh, But after the war, it becomes uh, a big kind of political issue. His uh, Democrat opponents make a lot of hay from this chicken story. In fact, they start calling the senator Chicken Stevens, and that um, uh, nasty nickname kind of sticks. And they pointed to this episode as as evidence of Stevens's uh, low character, or uh, as the quote at the heart of the title of the book suggests, that he was a man of bad reputation. Now, Senator Stevens and Adeline Patilio and the adoption of the biracial girl into the Torgery household, what was going on there? Yeah, so this is kind of connected uh, to the story we were just talking about. Because the, the Democrats are telling a range of other stories, right, circulating bits of gossip, trying to, to further tarnish Stevens's character. Um, and this case of uh, Adeline Patillo kind of becomes one of these stories. So uh, Torje, Stevens's ally, uh, brings um, Adeline, who's a, a teenage biracial girl, into his household, where Torje and his wife will ultimately serve as her guardian. Uh, so she's a young teen at the time. Adeline is, is most likely the daughter of a formerly enslaved woman and, um, and her owner, who had both resided in Caswell. Uh, we know that Adeline had run away from, from that household during Reconstruction because there's a Freedmen's Bureau record of her uh, being kind of found and then returned to that home. But by all accounts, at least the bits and pieces, it seems like she was in a very bad uh, home situation. And it's apparent that Stevens arranged the move kind of connecting uh, Adeline and Torje. He knew the Patillos. Um, he corresponded with Torje about their case a little bit. Uh, and it seems like he was the one who, who transported, who drove Adeline from Caswell to Torje's home. Uh, so he's kind of the middleman in this um, um, adoption process, if you will. But Democrats work pretty hard to try to make this a scandal. Uh, they, they suggest, right, in an era where there's deep Democratic fears about miscegenation as they styled it, they suggested that this was uh, an illicit relationship, right, uh, an extramarital affair, uh, abuse uh, taking place between Torje uh, and Adeline Patillo. And along the way, they try to tie Stevens to this situation. So it's a lot of really kind of nasty, scurrilous gossip playing out um, uh, in the newspapers in particular. And Stevens is, uh, is pulled into this as well. So again, kind of striking at these debates over reputation and character and morality that uh, were a big part of politics of the age. Did the Klan target both blacks and whites who supported the Republican Party? They did. Um, At least any, or at least locally, any Republican, black or white, was potentially in danger. And Stevens drew particular fire because he seemed so, so active and so ambitious. 
but my sense is that, that there were some class issues at play here as well, certainly. So uh, some of the clansmen, and maybe I should elaborate that the Ku Klux Klan um, has a local chapter that forms in Caswell in the very late 1860s and um, quickly becomes active in trying to influence local politics, largely through intimidation. So a lot of those clansmen in Caswell came from fairly prominent families, right? big names before and during the war. And men like Stevens, who seem to be, from their perspective at least, using the, the changed circumstances that came with the war and Reconstruction to move ahead, uh, those guys threatened that old guard. So, uh, so it's, uh, it's a white and black issue. Don't misunderstand me, right? Race is always a factor in what the local clan is doing, why they're doing it. Uh, but these actions are also really connected to to class and political alliance as well. It's a it's a complicated stew, I think. Now, tell us more about the acts of arson. You talk about this in your book. Why was it so important, and who was blamed for the fires? Yeah, arson kind of becomes the the central topic of discussion um, when it comes to local violence in the late eighteen sixties. So. Democrats in the state blame freed people, by and large, for the arson that seemed to be increasingly common across North Carolina, especially in the Piedmont counties, the central part of the state. And in particular, uh, Democrats in Caswell believe that it was Stevens who was orchestrating this campaign of arson. So they begin to tell these lurid stories, for example, of how Stevens um, in Union League meetings would issue matches to the members. Uh, books of matches and give them instructions about which uh, Democrats and their property to target that night. And this the specter of arson is is so scary at this moment in, in time and place because, well, fire had real power, especially in an agrarian community like Caswell County. So if your tobacco barn right goes up in flames and the tobacco crop is inside, that that represented a season of work gone and potentially depending on your circumstances, right? Financial ruin, a horse barn in flames that that threatened valuable livestock. Um, But that was also the muscle power, right? Needed to get around and to work the land. It was like your, your car or your tractor burning today. And I think we've also got to remember that the civil war um, had left, right? Trails of fiery destruction in the wake of, uh, of those armies. And that was fresh memory too. Right. So Sherman's force had been in North Carolina just a few years before coming out of the Georgia and South Carolina campaign. So fire was scary stuff and kind of freighted with the meanings that I just talked about. And night riders um, like those members of the Klan, they they used arson to intimidate Republicans. Indeed, the torch kind of the fiery torch kind of becomes their symbol. Uh, But there's also reason to believe that Republicans responded with their own acts of arson. Um, Although, again, I think it's clear or important to point out that the accusations against Stevens, the kind of gossip that I just recounted, um, and the county's union league, they were just that. They were just accusations. There's no direct proof that I found that there was anything like a coordinated campaign of arson uh, as a political weapon on their part. Uh, It's not impossible that it, that there was but uh, but no clear-cut evidence that that I can find in the record um, that it was the kind of conspiracy that Democrats imagined February 1870 another another notable person in your book was wide outlaw tell us about his story 
Yeah, Outlaws is a fascinating story. It really parallels that of John Stevens, but uh, with a with a crucial difference, and that is that that Outlaw was black. Um, Outlaw was a Union veteran. Uh, he becomes a businessman and a local politician in a neighboring county to Caswell, uh, a county called Alamance, just to the south. Uh, he almost certainly knew Stevens uh, through their shared political interests. And Outlaw faced a lot of the same things when he rose to prominence. Uh, so local Democrats launched the same kind of war of, of character assassination against Outlaw. They charge him with, uh, with corruption. Uh, they accuse him of low morals and so on. Uh, so a few months before Stevens is murdered, as you mentioned, February 1870, uh, a crowd of Democrats, uh, some of them masked, uh, we think, seize Outlaw. They carry him to the town square uh, of Graham, which was the county seat of Alamance. Uh, and there they, they hang and shoot him to death. Uh, it's a lynching. So Outlaw's death really kind of marked the start of uh, a more brutally violent effort to break Republican power uh, in both Alamance and Caswell. Uh, so Outlaw's killing comes first. And, uh, and as I sort of suggest, right, it, it, it hints at an escalation that's, that's building. Night riding and other, other instances of violence increase after February. They seem to be on the rise. In chapter four, you describe how Stevens went missing and where they found his body. Tell us that story. Yeah, so uh, May 21st, 1870, uh, Stevens attends a meeting of the Democratic Party in the county courthouse in Caswell, um, and that town is called Yanceville. Uh, this is either bold or foolhardy. Um, Stevens is there uh, basically scouting the Democrats' debates and their political platform. This meeting is about kind of strategizing for the coming elections that year. So Stevens attends. It is a public meeting. He doesn't go in disguise, right? Democrats know that he's sitting in the audience. They're kind of staring at him and whispering. Uh, in fact, a speaker or two that day will call him out. They'll essentially say, there sits the opponent. This is who we're fighting against. At one point in the afternoon uh, during the meeting, uh, Stevens is approached by a guy named Frank Wiley. Wiley is a, a former sheriff in the county, uh, kind of considered a moderate by a lot of individuals, but, but he is a Democrat. Wiley taps Stevens on the shoulder, murmurs a few words in the senator's ear. Nobody can really hear what's said because of the noise in the room and, and it's whispered. Uh, and then the two of them separately leave the room, uh, go downstairs to the courthouse basement, and kind of disappear from the record. Uh, Stevens does not come home. He doesn't show up that evening. His wife pretty quickly grew alarmed. She was worried about him going to this meeting in the first place. Uh, and then a search begins um, by both white and black uh, Republicans and friends of the family in town uh, that carries on through the night trying to find Stevens and figure out what might have happened. At the break of dawn the next day on the 22nd, uh, peering through a window, and this is an elevated basement, peering through the window of one of these basement rooms, they, they find his body. Uh, it's in a locked room. Uh, when they get into the room, uh, they discover that he's been strangled with a short rope uh, and stabbed twice in the throat and once in the chest. Uh, so Stevens is found dead first thing next morning. What did Governor Holden believe about John Stevens' murder? 
Well, Holden saw this pretty much from the start as evidence of a coordinated rebellion. So Holden's take was that Stevens's murder was, was part of a carefully, that it was a carefully planned assassination. And he believed that it was almost certainly done by the Klan uh, and that it was conducted in an effort to overthrow his administration, right? Maybe by fire and sword. So pretty much from the, the start, immediately after the killing, Holden doesn't, he doesn't think that this is an isolated act, right? Um, and he'd been primed to this viewpoint by, by that lynching of Wyatt Outlaw that we talked about a few months earlier. And then that, uh, that escalating violence in the Piedmont, especially in Alamance and Caswell. Uh, and in fact, one of Stevens's jobs, and I haven't mentioned it to this point, was he had served as a secret uh, detective. That was the title for Holden, one of a few scattered across the state. And so in the months leading up to his death, Stevens had been writing to Holden about what he saw as local conspiracy, conspiracies. So the fact that he's killed, the fact that it seems right secretive and being covered up, all of this fuels into what Holden was already ready to see, which was uh, perhaps a second civil war about to break out uh, in North Carolina. How did Governor Holden respond to what he saw as a insurrection? Uh, well, he takes kind of a staged approach. Even though he thinks it's an insurrection from the very start, um, um, he kind of escalates his response to. So the first thing he does is to offer a reward for the killers, right? See if he can, can get some names or individuals produced out of the community. When that fails, um, he'll ultimately declare uh, insurrection and, and declare martial law. Uh, first in Alamance, in fact, he does that right before uh, Stevens is killing and the stuff that comes out of the outlaw murder. And then he'll add Caswell to that declaration as well. He'll call for federal soldiers. He'll try to get Washington, D.C. to send troops, and they will send some. Uh, but ultimately, he'll also call out um, a North Carolina militia force. So he'll try to deal with this uh, in-house to the extent possible. Another notable person in the book is George Kurt. Tell us about his role in stamping out the Knight Riders and the rest of Turner and others. So Kirk had been a Union officer in the Civil War. Uh, he'd operated primarily in Appalachia, especially in the mountains of East Tennessee. And, and that had been a landscape of uh, pretty nasty guerrilla fighting in a lot of cases, uh, a place that was internally very divided um, in its allegiances to the war effort. And Kirk, uh, in that conflict, had led a number of raids into North Carolina out of Tennessee. He developed a, a reputation as a pretty fierce fighter. So Holden would place Kirk in charge of the militia force tasked with arresting suspected Klansmen in Alamance and Caswell. He's supposed to round up um, the usual suspects, if you will, hopefully in the, the process netting individuals who had killed both Outlaw and Stevens. And that's how this struggle comes to be labeled in North Carolina, the Kirk-Holden War. So it's referring, referring to George Kirk and Governor Holden. But this decision to place Kirk in charge is, is kind of a questionable one, at least if we're armchair quarterbacking. Uh, Kirk was an effective military officer. Right? He was experienced uh, and generally successful. But he was also a guy who a lot of North Carolinians, especially ones who have been Confederates in the war, um, he was pretty villainous right, in their imagination. Uh, mothers have probably told scary stories about Kirk to their kids uh, in North Carolina during the war. And here he's back. Uh, 
So as part of that policing Alamance and Caswell, Kirk's men will arrest a guy named Josiah Turner. And Turner was, at the time, the most outspoken conservative editor in the state. So he's kind of the Democrats' mouthpiece. And he'd been a very vocal critic of the Holden administration. So this arrest proves the most controversial element, at least for a while, in this Kirk-Holden war, because it looks like a blatantly political move, right? This is Holden silencing um, this kind of pain in his butt in the form of Turner. And it's made worse uh, by the fact that Turner lived in a different county. He wasn't in Alamance or Caswell. He was in uh, Orange, I believe it was. So he didn't live in the area that was declared in martial law. The soldiers really had no authority to arrest him, but they go and arrest him out of his home anyway. And so this is tremendously bad PR uh, for uh, for Holden, right? Uh, looks blatantly political, um, even to some of his allies, not just his political opponents. Because of the problems of racial and political violence, there were two federal investigations of what was happening in North Carolina. What did these reports find? Yeah, so the U.S. Congress would launch a couple of investigations into Southern violence in the early 1870s. Um, The first one focuses pretty explicitly on North Carolina and the kind of messiness of the Kirk Holden War. And then that one sets the model for a a better known, larger scale joint investigation that kind of surveys violence across the southern states. And it again revisits North Carolina in addition to to a range of other southern states. So these two investigations um, collect stories of outrages. They they bring witnesses to, to D.C. and then they publish the whole thing, bringing national attention to what's going on in the South. Um, and essentially, these two big investigations um, reach the conclusion that there's a widespread problem across the southern states with white supremacist secret societies trying to undermine the rule of government. And this will lead to the what are called the Enforcement Acts, so federal legislation that would uh, would ultimately crack down on the Klan and similar groups. Uh, so, of course, Stevens's murder isn't the, the sole cause of all of this. There's tremendous bloodshed across the South. Um, you know, equally grim stories to be found in almost every corner of the region. But Stevens's death and the aftermath uh, that we started talking about um, is is an important flashpoint, really encouraging greater federal interest in the problem. Now, coming back to Governor Holden, why was he impeached? Well, kind of the, the core of it is because Democrats had gained a majority in the North Carolina legislature in the election that followed the Kirk Holden War. Um, and so they had the political power to do it. That's the kind of mercenary uh, cause of all of this. But more specifically, uh, they charge Holden with um, a number of things, but kind of centers on a, a couple of key accusations. First is that Holden had uh, violated the state constitution. When he suspends habeas corpus as a part of his declaration of martial law, uh, the state constitution had frankly forbidden that. And it was Republicans who had written that constitution in 1868. In fact, they had taken up that various question or that, that very question of whether you could suspend habeas corpus even in an insurrection. And they decided, no, you couldn't. Um, so he had done that. And the second big core charge was that uh, everything he had done had been a blatant effort to consolidate political power and remove opponents. So a lot of the charges end up being waived, but he is found guilty on several specific charges, uh, including the habeas corpus issue, and he's impeached. And so to my understanding, Holden is the first sitting governor in the United States to be impeached. So it's a pretty dramatic outcome in that way. 
How did the memory of Stevens and the murder shape up after Reconstruction? It kind of starts, this the shaping of memory kind of starts in the newspapers, uh, which were blatantly political organs at the time, right? Much more so than, than today. So competing newspapers kind of continued the war of character assassination. Uh, they variously describe Stevens as a demagogue or a martyr, depending on their take, and printed page after page of rumors regarding uh, the murder, who might be to blame, uh, and so on. But then as Democrats seize power in the state after they impeach Holden uh, and then consolidate their hold on state politics, they gradually kind of squeeze out competing voices of what had happened and ultimately kind of firm up, especially white opinion in the state, that Stevens had been corrupt, that his death was largely a positive thing, and that there was uh, no real evidence of who had killed him. Uh, So there were a lot of accusations, for example, uh, in the press in the years that followed, that Stevens had actually been killed by free people, that this was some sort of internal political struggle or a personal matter, that it actually had nothing to do with Democrats or the Klan at all. What role did historians have in these memories and perhaps in misremembering Stevens' story? Well, unfortunately, historians bear, early historians bear a lot of blame uh, for, for sort of twisting what had happened. The first scholarly histories of North Carolina's Reconstruction uh, characterized Stevens as a, a villain, and in many cases often praised the Klan as a kind of necessary response to what they labeled Republican misrule, uh, or even as the heroes of the story. So these early historians uh, really seize upon the kind of slander and the discussion of reputations that we've been talking about and then reinforce them with, um, you know, grand pronouncements and footnotes, making it all kind of extra official. So this is the take, for example, that um, that historian named J.G. Derulac Hamilton, who writes the, uh, the first full scholarly treatment of the era in North Carolina in the 19-teens, uh, this was his perception of what had happened. And then Hamilton's take is, uh, is copied and, and lives on and is reinforced in, in subsequent histories. And it becomes the official line in the state's textbooks at the, the secondary and the, the college levels uh, well into the mid-20th century. There were some attempted confessions to the killing over the years, right? Tell us about those. Yeah, so uh, twice in the late 1800s, there were confessions or partial confessions to the murder of John Stevens. Uh, So a a few years after the trial, the the first one is actually Frank Wiley, that guy who had tapped on Stevens' shoulder and seemed perhaps to be a part of whatever may have happened. Uh, In fact, Wiley and a couple of others have been brought to a preliminary hearing in in Raleigh and um, remanded back to the county for trial, but ultimately had never been tried. It had been dropped for kind of lack of interest and evidence at the local level. So Wiley had been a a prominent suspect. If you had to ask anyone, right, who did it, a lot of them would have mentioned maybe Frank Wiley. So after all of this, Wiley had moved away from Caswell, uh, further west in North Carolina, maybe to get away from this stuff. Uh, And he passes away several years after uh, the end of Reconstruction and apparently gives a kind of deathbed confession to being involved, uh, although the details aren't great on this. 
His family will deny this confession. They'll say he's kind of out of his mind. And, and ultimately, it will largely be ignored. Nobody pays that much attention to it. And then there's a second confession, one that makes a much bigger splash in the state. That came from a guy named Felix Roan in the early 1890s. Uh, and Roan, his name had been thrown around in some of those uh, hearings and other things shortly after the murder, too. And this, again, was a deathbed confession. Uh, so when Roan uh, appears to be about to die, he calls a, a newspaper reporter to uh, his room and gives a pretty detailed account of what he said happened. Uh, Roan said he participated. Yes, it was a Klan conspiracy. He gives some de- details and he implicates a handful of other men, including Wiley. Uh, the others were all maybe conveniently already dead. So Roan is the last uh, alive on his list. And this confession circulates the state. Uh, It's printed and then reprinted in newspapers. um, And then, rather mysteriously, kind of becomes all but forgotten. So that like 10 years after this confession, you could find numerous accounts in print in the state of people asking the question, who killed John Stevens, as if Roan had never come forward. And I think Roan's confession kind of gets swept aside for a couple of reasons. First, um, it seemed to have some holes in it. Uh, It kind of mostly presented details about the crime that were already known or or in the popular imagination. Uh, There's not much that's new here. And uh, and some of the details don't fit neatly with what people thought they knew. So I think there was a little bit of suspicion as to how accurate it might have been. And second, um, I think the big thing at work is just the messages of the, the lost cause and this new narrative of reconstruction as a tragedy and the Klan as a defensive redeeming force, the stuff that's being written by people like Hamilton. That narrative had become so dominant that Roan's tale, which was kind of apologetic and a little bit regretful of what had happened, that didn't have a whole lot of appeal uh, to the state's whites in a place now dominated by the Democratic Party that had so thoroughly rewritten its Reconstruction history. So Roan, too, his confession kind of gets um, swept under the rug so that people could, as I said, continue to wonder who killed Stevens, even though two guys had already come forward and said that they did it. July 2nd, 1919, John Lee visited Raleigh to tell his story to the North Carolina Historical Commission. What did he say? He said he did it. So this is confession number three, if we're keeping count. Uh, Lee, and we haven't really discussed him to this point, but his name had popped up from time to time. Uh, Lee had been mentioned in a couple of occasions in uh, those Raleigh hearings, and um, some witnesses had said that he'd been in the courthouse that day. And there had been some rumors circulating about a, a certain individual named Lee maybe being a leader in the local clan. Uh, John Lee was, was from a prominent planter family uh, in Caswell. Uh, they'd been large slaveholders before the war and remained pretty prominent after the war. But Lee had been a, a fairly young man in the 1870s. He was still in his 20s at that point, uh, even though he was a Confederate veteran. So Lee testifies that uh, not only did he take part in this conspiracy to this Klan conspiracy to kill Stevens, uh, he says that he was actually the orchestrator. He had been the leader. He's the one who had plotted it out. Uh, And he spoke to the historical commission before a handful of kind of the leading keepers of public memory in the state. Um, 
Uh, so kind of the director of the institution and the guy who creates the Hall of History, kind of the State History Museum is there. Uh, and one of the officials goes on to become the first archivist of the United States. Right? So the most prominent record keeper in the U.S. Uh, shortly thereafter. And Lee gives uh, a much longer list of names of men who participated. Uh, so up to roughly a dozen names that, that Lee lists. They included Frank Wiley, but curiously not Felix Roan. Um, neither Wiley nor Roan had mentioned Lee in their confessions, just to kind of complicate the matter. And when Lee testifies in 1919, everyone he names except for one individual uh, had passed away. And then Lee requested that his testimony remain sealed uh, and that it only be revealed after he dies. You would think that state officials, right, would, uh, would not sit on uh, a confession to a murder of a state senator, but they do. Uh, they seal this thing up. They put it in the archives. Uh, they agree to hold on to it. In fact, uh, two of the three officials in the room die before Stevens, uh, before Lee finally does. Uh, Lee only passes away in 1935, uh, a full 65 years after the killing. Uh, and it's at that date that his confession will be revealed. And, and then it will draw not just state attention, but nationwide attention. So D.C. newspapers will carry uh, the story of this mystery finally cracked. How has Stephen's story been told in more recent years? Well, there's been a pretty radical shift. So there are a wave of historical revisionists and post-revisionists, and even post-post-revisionists, I think they call themselves, that has reshaped how we think about Reconstruction. And they've been much kinder to John Stevens. So Stevens and his story get quick mention in a number of Reconstruction histories, including some of the, the big, really influential narratives of the era that have come out in the last 20, 30, 40 years. And those historians usually point to Stevens's case um, as an example of the rising violence from secret white supremacist societies like the Klan, uh, and then to tell the story of how federal and state governments responded, right, either effectively or not. And Stevens in these histories um, is, is alternately an effective kind of uh, cross-racial organizer or uh, a true believer in racial equality in some of these tellings. Some of them even kind of frame him as a, a martyr. So Stevens is now kind of a man killed for his cause rather than the, the man of bad reputation that his, his critics had so long defined him as. Is there a more accurate way of remembering this murder? Yeah, I don't know that theirs is more accurate, really. Um, it's certainly more morally satisfying. Right? So I, I do believe right, Stevens was on the right side of history. Uh, so by and large, there's a, there's a temptation to pull for him. Right? There, there's an understandable sort of urge to make him the hero, as a lot of the more recent history has done. Uh, but Stevens, at least in my discovering, is also a pretty complicated man. <laughs> and so that, that neat story is a little too neat, I think. Um, it turns this complicated guy, who I'm not convinced was actually very likable or personally admirable, to be honest, into kind of a caricature. So I think the, the recent revision really tells us more about those historians than it does about Stevens or his aims. So it, it's a better narrative than the early narrative, but I'm still not convinced it's kind of the right take. What message do you want the reader to take away after they finish your book? 
Uh, well, I would hope they would leave with a couple of things. Um, one is an understanding that Reconstruction was intensely local, just in terms of how it played out. You know, existing personal relationships, ambitions, the politics of place, this stuff mattered a great deal, right? The big sweeping national forces, those things were important, of course. But to really understand where Reconstruction succeeded, where it failed, I think we need to dig deeper than we often do. And that's hard, right? It's a, it's a big, the South is big and it's, it's hard to know everything about everywhere. And yet so much of reconstruction hinges on those, uh, those intimate details. Uh, and then second, I would love readers to come away with this um, conception that the struggle of reconstruction's meaning was in some ways as important as what happened in the era itself. So the, as we might call it, the reconstruction of reconstruction was a long process. And it tells us a lot about how the U.S. grappled with the legacy of the war, its aftermath, um, and this big question of racial equality, right? So reconstruction does not end with that compromise of 1876. Uh, I think that's an important thing that this book emphasizes through a particular story. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? Uh, it is not related. <laughs> it is it's something of a pretty big shift. Uh, it's kind of a return to my environmental history roots uh, with, uh, with the history of American hunting since the Civil War. Uh, so more specifically, it's a book that's going to tackle an irony. Um, that irony is that we imagine that, uh, that hunters go to the woods to get away from it all. Right? That's the saying to escape the, the hustle and the bustle of the modern world and kind of find peace in nature, slow down. But at the same time, they sure take a lot of stuff along with them, from the latest guns to rangefinders and scent masking clothing and jacked up trucks and all that stuff. So this is going to be a history of how that consumer culture came to be and why hunters accepted it and then even embraced it when it was so obviously ironic. Uh, it's proving to be a really interesting project. Uh, my reading list has been uh, quite quirky. Well, we'll be looking forward to reading that new book. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs>